0: Genesis chapter 2 Genesis chapter 2 Now we can't go back this evening otherwise we shall never get through um, what we have about last uh, week what we said about last week uh, about this chapter last week except simply to remind you that the, the key to the difference between chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Genesis is that chapter 1 is the fact of creation and chapter 2 is the purpose of creation. You've got there the key to those two chapters. Genesis chapter 1, for instance, if uh, an order is given, Genesis chapter 1 is the historical order of creation. It gives us um, something of the order, the way things came. If if there's any clue at all in these opening chapters to method, then it's in Genesis 1. Genesis 2, its whole vocabulary, as you you remember we found out last week, is quite different from Genesis 1, the very vocabulary used. And indeed, even the words suggest purpose and destiny. The very words used in this chapter, um, as it were, lead us, give us a clue as to the meaning of it. You'll notice another thing about chapter 2, which we mentioned last week, and that was that um, chapter 2 is in a very real way figurative. It's not wholly figurative, neither is it wholly literal. It is um, a chapter which has much within it of symbol. And I think that unless we understand that, and we can't go back over how we explained it last week, something of the Oriental imagery of the word, nevertheless we've got to understand that if we're going to understand why Genesis 2 is so different. For, you see, Genesis 2 gives a completely different order to Genesis 1. It tells us that man was the beginning, Genesis 1 tells us that man was the apex, the climax, or the consummation, the crown, if you like, of creation. It just tells you this happened, that happened, the next happened, the other happened, and last of all, God created man. He was the crown of it all, he was the top stone. But Genesis 2 says uh, nothing was created until God first formed man, the dust of the ground. Then everything else came into being. He planted a garden and the trees, he caused the trees to grow up and then he caused the animals and the birds to come forth. And in Genesis 2 we find that man is the center of everything. He is the reason for everything. He is the heart of it. Genesis 2 begins with man. Genesis 1 ends with man. In Genesis 1 man is the crown of it all, the consummation of God's work. In Genesis 2, man is the beginning of God's work. Now, the difference is simple. The first is historical order and method. The second is the purpose. Everything was created because of man. Man lies at the heart of it all. That's very important for us to understand that Genesis 2 then sets forth something of the purpose of God. One of the things that's been a great concern to me about these three chapters, these first three chapters of Genesis, is that we should never, ever again, even subconsciously, come to these chapters with this kind of mentality that, oh, this is child's play. The first three chapters of Genesis, oh, that's the shallow. That's sort of all very, very simple. And many of us subconsciously, being, having been brought up in schools that now do not teach the Word of God as it should be taught, have got this mentality that, well, there's been so much controversy over the first few chapters of Genesis and so much uh, uh, conflict over it that, well, really you're walking on very unsafe ground when you're treading on these chapters but it is my own firm conviction that the first three chapters of the Bible are absolutely fundamental to the whole of Scripture. Mm. And that if we, for any reason at all, uh, dismiss uh, anything of these first three chapters, we must of necessity be in error in all the rest that we believe. You cannot dismiss the first three chapters of Genesis, and walk in truth. It is an impossibility, and hence I believe the conflict, because the enemy knows it. There is a sense in which um, the whole of the Bible is telescoped into these three chapters. For instance, here, with with this chapter 2, the second chapter of Genesis, you've got everything, everything, in the Bible in seed form, in this second chapter. Genesis chapter 3 would be without real meaning if it wasn't for this, this second chapter of Genesis. The importance, then, of this chapter is tremendous. I believe, as I said last week, and I do feel I ought to reiterate this, if we could only see what the Holy Spirit has written in the second chapter of Genesis, it would deliver us from a tremendous amount of difficulties in our Christian lives. Tremendous amount of difficulties. You see evangelical Christianity doesn't touch the difficulties, that's the trouble. It only scratches the circumference. It tells people to make a decision, it brings them to the Lord, it tells them their work is witnessing of service, and then we're left there. You see Genesis 2 gets right down to the basic difficulties, and this whole deceiving work of the enemy which, of course, we have to remember when we come to the Lord, we're not just wholly delivered from it. We've got an old nature, and uh, that old nature is de- as deceived as ever, and I'm afraid it is as ready to make alliance with the enemy as ever it was. There's ground there. And that's one of the great needs for us to understand what was God's purpose in man? How did he constitute man originally? And what was really man's destiny? Get those things clear. When we come to Genesis 3 and find out what's happened to man, we've got a picture of the whole thing. We can uh, sort of uh, really understand something more of the uh, real um, meaning that is within our salvation. I don't believe anyone can understand their salvation in any full way in any effective way, until they've understood something of Genesis 2, in practice. We just don't know what we're saved from, we don't know why we really need to be saved, and we don't know what we're saved into, and we don't understand the end of our salvation if we don't understand Genesis 2. Our salvation, after all, is only God's undoing of the work of Satan, and starting all over again, renewing us in the image of his own son. Here you've got it, in this chapter. Now, you see, uh, the only thing I have put on the board is that little diagram. I (laughs) don't know whether it explains anything. Um, It's very, very simple, but I wanted you to see that in Genesis 2, you've got man in his relationship to everything. We find in Genesis 2 that man uh, is the centre of the whole creation of God. What was God's thought in man? God's thought in man was that he should be the link between himself and the creation. In other words, there was something about man uh, which made him the crown of the natural creation. He was the apex of the natural creation. But there was also something about man which made him part, essentially, of God and therefore, as it were, God and creation meet in man. Do you get that? Now, in that simple diagram, it's very simple, if you want to ask questions about articles, come up and ask them. Um, You've got got, uh, Genesis chapter 2. You've got Genesis chapter 1 here and Genesis chapter 2 here. Do you see what I'm getting at? Here, man's the crown of the natural creation, you see. He is the highest thing in the natural creation the most wonderful thing, the most unique part of the natural creation, the most intelligent, if you want to put it that way, uh, in the whole natural uh, creation. But in Genesis 2 we find that man was not made a super-animal. He was not made just a natural being, much more wonderful than all other creatures. We find in Genesis 2, that man was made for God and was, as it were, to be the most amazing vehicle, if you want to put it that way, or vessel, in which God himself should uh, live. Now, that is the most amazing thing of all. God, as it were, has made a natural creation in that he has put man, and man was to be, as it were, the thing in which God lived not just in one man, but in the whole race. Uh, we shall see that as we go on. Thus, you see, there are four things that we find in the, uh, the two ver- verses, five, three verses, five, six, and seven of Genesis 2. First of all, last week we looked at his creation, then we looked at his constitution, then we noticed he had a conditional destiny, And lastly, we noticed his capacity. Simply, what is man's creation? God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into him the breath of life and man became a living soul. Therefore, we note straight away that man is a direct and personal creation of God. God formed man in a distinct and personal way, or something unique about the creation of man. God formed him. Then have you noticed the words? God formed, which is to fashion or constitute, that's the word used there, formed man. He breathed into him the breath of life. That is, God did not create something only. He imparted something. He imparted something. Man is not just a creation of God. God is the father of our spirits. Father of spirits or father of lights. That is, he imparted something. That's why Adam is called a son of God. Luke, he's called the Son of God, in the sense that God imparted something of himself. He breathed into him the breath of life. And then, you know, man became a living soul. The the imparting of something of God into man brought into being this third part of man, uh, the intermediate part of man, which we call the soul. He became a living soul. That's a word that's used elsewhere in the scripture for souls of animals. But here it is used in a quite unique way, obviously, because of the method by which man's soul was produced. And I leave that. You know, of course, his constitution. Man is spirit, soul, and body. He is, first of all, dust of the ground. The word used is adamar, which is red earth or topsoil. And do you remember we spoke about that at some length last week? Water and soil is, is, is the, the constituents in man's body. And then secondly, man has breathed breathed into him by God the breath of life. And the Hebrew is plural, breath of lives. It's the plural of excellence. Can't say that too far, it just means some kind of life, really. Although some people would like to think that it means two kinds of lives. The breath of lives, uh, spiritual life and social life. Leave that though. Certainly it does mean a certain kind of life, unique life. It is a plural which denotes something, uh, something excellent, as it were, something superb, something quite, uh, which has uh, got to be emphasised and underlined. And uh, God breathed a certain kind of life into man. He gave his own life, as it were, something of himself he imparted to man. And then man also has a living soul, a soul which is um, his personality, whatever you like to call it, which is also a part of him. His spirit corresponds to God. And then you also notice he's got a conditional destiny. Man's destiny wasn't uh, uh, an automatic thing. He had a conditional destiny. He was not perfect. He was not, uh, in that sense, holy. He was not evil. He was not sinful. Man was innocent. Uh, But man was warned. He was innocent, but he was warned. God had warned him very clearly of the danger of certain um, taking a certain line, choosing a, a certain type um, of life, and he was left to the choice. He was also evidently, although it's only by implication, in uh, the uh, 15th verse, um, it is it, Adam was put into the garden to dress or till and to guard it or keep it. The word is to observe, to watch over it. And we believe that there's a possibility there, there's an implication that God warned Adam that there was some invisible uh, antagonist in the atmosphere uh, that that Adam had to watch. He had to take heed. There was something which was not for God, but was against God. And uh, Adam's whole destiny was absolutely focused upon what we call the tree of life in the midst of the garden, and the whole meaning of marriage, what marriage really means, spiritually. Upon those two things, uh, Adam's destiny, man's destiny, was conditioned. And then, beyond that, of course, man has a capacity. Well, that's a very wonderful thing. The capacity of man, his capacity... He is the only creature in creation that answers to God because he has a spirit which is the same essential character as God. <clears throat> and therefore man has a capacity. You only have to think of it. <clears throat> man has a capacity. Uh, he is capable of being indwelt by God. Indwelt by God, personally. That's the capacity of man. And you know, we've grown used to it. We hear it so often, we read about it in the Bible, we sing about it, we pray about it, we talk about it, and we've all grown awfully used to it. It no longer leaves us overwhelmed. But when we sit back and think of it, if we could, in a virgin way, in a new way, what a wonderful thing that is, just to sit back and let it sink in you and i have a have a capacity which is unique a capacity for god we can be indwelt by god we can be possessed by god we can represent god we're the only creatures on the whole earth that can actually represent god we are as it were the image should be the image of god in this creation representing him expressing him what a capacity but the most wonderful thing to me is the capacity for a, an ever-growing knowledge of God. That's a capacity which we, what, do, what shall we be? John says, well, we know uh, if we are now sons of God, uh, we don't know what we shall be. If we're children of God now, what's it going to be one day uh, in the ages of the ages? Uh, it's just going to be an eternal uh, unfolding of vistas, which would uh, do us no good to see at present, otherwise we'd all be lost in the wonder of it. But, you know, heaven's not going to be, as some people think, just sort of looking through binoculars at one particular spot. As uh, Many people have got that subconscious idea that they're going to all be round the throne, sort of thing, sort of looking through the vast crowds, down the arena, uh, upon the throne there, and that sort Oh no, heaven heaven is going to be a most amazing, a most amazing realm and a most amazing uh, life. If you want to put it that way, for want of a better word. You see, we have a capacity. We've got a capacity at present to get to know God. We've got, we're getting to know the Lord, perhaps through a difficult way down here. But when we're freed from sin and freed from a fallen nature, then we shall be let loose into into a capacity for God which can which can, is capable of increase, of enlargement. God will always, he's inexhaustible, he is unsearchable, and he'll always be thinking up something new to lead his children into, and as it were, to uncover to his children. Now, so there's something very, very wonderful about a man. Now I heard that makes you realise what a wonderful creature, uh, in a modest and humble way, man was as God created him. What a wonderful creature. Uh, something wonderful about man. We marvel at the natural creation, but I believe God marvels at man much more. It's the most wonderful creation man is, in every way. His body is wonderful. His soul. Who knows the soul of a man? What a wonderful thing the soul is. Even now we've got these men called psychologists and psychiatrists who just go around in giddy circles because really they've not yet really got down to the uh, real understanding of the soul. They're just touching it. And because they're only touching it, they just don't know. They say, I'm told that the capacity of a human soul is unbelievable. It explains a tremendous amount, although we don't want to go into it in telepathy and all those kind of things. The capacity of a human soul, hypnotism, and all that realm of things, psychic things. Oh, the, the, the amazing capacity of the human soul. But you know, we as the Lord's people are discovering something of the capacity of the spirit. And that is the most wonderful realm of all. Because that is the realm which is limitless. The other has its, its defined restrictions and limits. But you see, the spirit can swim in God. It's, it's, there's, no, there's no boundaries to God. And the spirit is that part of man which can be lost in God eternally. And never, as it were, reach the end. It can never go to the boundaries of God and say, I've got him. Discover everything that there is to know about him. It will just never happen. Uh, the amazing thing is, you see, that the Spirit is something which can be lost in God for all eternity. That's something our minds just reel back at, but there you are, that's the wonder of it. So you see something of man as he was created. Now, I want to go on this evening, and I do trust it will not be heavy, to um, the next important part of this, as I do close it, open that door, would you now, John? I think would be better, it will not be such a draft. Thank you. All right, if you're in a draft, let us know. Um, I want to speak now for a while on man on probation. You'll find that from verse 8 to verse 17. Man on probation. Now I think it almost goes without saying, and we shall see the more as we go on through this chapter, that God's creation of man, God's whole thought in the creation of man was to have someone that could respond to him, and that could answer to him, and that was, who was capable, capable of oh, human terms just fail here, capable of receiving God, of holding God, and of walking with God. Now, you know, that immediately brings up the whole question of man's will, uh, a subject which I'm not going to get lost in this evening. Probably give you a lot more problems than I solve. But um, the whole point is simply this, that when God created man, the one thing he he got clear of was that he would not have an automatic and impersonal machine. The whole word of God bears that out. God's fault in creation was not something that had to do certain things if you press certain buttons, but a creature that could and would. In other words, you've, you've got it all very beautifully portrayed later on in this whole question of marriage. The Lord's not going to be satisfied by someone who had to come to him and uh, who he sought to press certain buttons and they came. That wouldn't satisfy God. God is going to have someone who is there because she loves him and she's going to stay there because she loves him. comes across a lot of our Unfortunate ideas about uh, being uh, with the Lord. us I'm afraid, are only with the Lord sometimes because of duty or because we're frightened. Oh no, 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 the Lord will get us through on all that even if it takes a big battering. He'll get us right through to the place where we're there because we love him. And we'll stay there because we love him and that's the whole purpose here God didn't want something automatic and he didn't want something impersonal he wanted um, a man, a race, a a a a a creation that would willingly, as it were, open its arms to God and say, I want to go this way God could define two types of man one which was intimately bound up with himself and the other which was intimately bound up with man and he could know that man would say, I want thee. I will be with thee. I'll take this course. I will would, would be wholly given up to thee. There's a tremendous amount bound up in that because of course man was so created and so constituted that actually man was only, in the thought of God, man was only constituted for one of those types. God's whole thought was that man was so constituted that he couldn't be happy in any other realm but the realm that God had uh, prepared. Nevertheless, God gave him the choice. Would you go as it were? Will you come and live in the realm which you've been constituted for? For which I have created you? Or would you prefer to have everything in yourself and be the master of your own destiny? Choose yourself everything. Now, you see, there we uh, touch something which I'm not going to go into tonight. You know uh, how I feel about these things, the question of election and the question of free will and the way the two tie up together. But what you have got, and that's quite clear here, is that man is on probation. God wanted man to be with him because man wanted to be with him. He was going to possess man because man wanted to be possessed. He was going to dwell in man because man wanted to be dwelt in. He was going to open his heart to man because man wanted God to open his heart. That was the the line the Lord was going to take. No doubt about it, if it wanted to, he could have made something quite different. That would have had to. But no, that was the line the Lord took. And so we come to the significance of the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You know that one is in the midst of the garden and the other, it's not mentioned where it was. It may have been in some corner of the garden, for all we know. But the tree of life was in the midst of the garden. Now, what do these trees stand for? Well, I believe there are many, many conflicting uh, interpretations of the trees. We know, of course, that the tree of life speaks supremely of the Lord Jesus. It speaks of the Lord Jesus. We see it through Scripture that he is, in a very real way, um, the tree of life, the life of God. But, you know, Trees in scripture, it's remarkable if you look through scripture and and find it out, do often speak of men. They are a symbol of man, often. For instance, the psalmist speaks of us in Psalm 1. He speaks of us being like a tree beside the the river, whose leaf shall not fade. Uh, Again, another place, Jeremiah speaks of us, either being a little dwarf juniper uh, or being a cedar. And in many other places, man is spoken of in these terms. An upright man is likened to a palm tree that is strange, you see. And the cedars of Lebanon are often a a figure of dignity and so on. We can go through a whole lot of things that uh, trees speak of. The acacia wood of the tabernacle, for instance, always speaks of the humanity of the Lord Jesus. And we could go through thing after thing which speaks... Of trees or wood as symbolizing humanity. And it is my own conviction here that the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and of evil represent two kinds of men. Two types of men, if you like. The tree of life speaks, now forgive me, you you've heard this, but I'm going to say it again because we're dealing with it here and it needs to be said. The tree of life speaks first of all, of a God-centred, God-conscious, and God-dependent man. That is, a man who is centred in God by the life of God. He is dependent upon God because he lives by God's life. And he is conscious of God because he is possessed and owned by the life of God. That is, a man who has, as it were, received the life of God and has become a dependent being, a God-dependent being. Not independent, not self-dependent, but God-dependent. That is, God is at the heart of his being and the man is centred and focused in God. That man to live is dependent. That, to me, is the tree of life. You look at the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus is and speaks of the tree of life. The Lord Jesus, have you ever found a more God-dependent, God-centered, and God-conscious man than the Lord Jesus? You'll not find one. The Lord Jesus was absolutely and wholly that. On the other side, you've got the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What does Satan say about this? He says that if you take this tree, you will be as God. He says you'll be as God. You'll be equal with God. You'll have this something inside of you which you'll uh, you'll be able to decide yourself. You'll be able to determine yourself what's right. The knowledge will be in yourself. That's the knowledge of good and evil. And it stands... Always, to me, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil stands for a self-conscious, self-centered, and self-dependent life, as opposed to the other. So, you see, straight away, today in the world, you have got two types of humanity, and they are totally different. Their constitution is basically and totally different. You've got on the one side a God-conscious, God-centered, and God-dependent humanity, which is in Christ, and on the other side you've got a self-centered, self-conscious, and self-dependent humanity, which is in Adam. That was the choice made. Everything, everything hung upon Adam's choice. Would he choose the tree of life? Or would he, which was so prominently placed in the very center and heart of the garden, or would he find out the other and take that? That was the choice before man. Man had been so created, so constituted, that uh, he was made for the tree of life. Made for If he took the other course, he would become a pervert. hope that doesn't shock you. But we're all born perverts. Something utterly perverted about us. And of course, that simple fact is written in our experience from our birth. We grow up with it. All the time, all through life, we're conscious of something perverted something that oh you give a man all the money you give him all the popularity you give him everything that he desires and he still knows deep down there's something he hasn't got and he doesn't know what it is all the time there's something in him that tells him this isn't it this isn't it this isn't it To be satiated for the moment but it's still not it and he goes on so you see there's something there right deep deep down in man then you'll notice the other amazing thing about this garden if this is what the tree of life stands for which of course was fulfilled in our lord jesus as he is the fulfillment of the tree of life he is the tree of life in that sense he brought a new kind of humanity in didn't he when he came he was transfigured uh, upon that mount of transfiguration god's seal was upon that kind of humanity and then when he went to the cross he he as it were finalized everything as the last adam he took everything up in, uh, about us naturally into himself and died. And that was the end of, the, of a race. And when he was raised again on the third day, he was the head of a new creation, head of a new man. he had brought in a new kind of humanity. And that still, that's why, of course, when he was raised, do you remember what the, one of the first things he did? He breathed into them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. And the first thing he did, why did he do that? Because he wanted to impress upon them that it was the beginning of a new creation. God was breathing into them. So you see something of the wonder of all this. You'll note another thing about the probation of man. Have you noticed that everything to do with the garden is life? Everything to do with this garden is life. Mark the arrangement. First of all, you've got the tree of life in the midst of the garden. Then, out from the garden, you've got a river flowing and this river branches into four great rivers that water the earth. From the book of Revelation, and actually from Ezekiel, we understand that the tree of life was, as it were, almost at the source of the river. It was in the midst of the river, almost. It was on one side and on the other. So what does this mean? Here in the garden, you've got, first of all, a garden called the Garden of Eden and this means delight, the delight of God. So you have a clearly defined boundary and it's called (coughs) delight. It is both the delight of God and it was meant to be the delight of man. In this, as it were, clearly defined boundary, clearly defined garden, the whole delight of God was centered and the whole delight of man would come to its fulfillment. Man would, would be satisfied, as it were, within the boundaries of this garden. I am, I have said to you that this chapter is in many ways has symbolism about it, and I'm quite sure that Eden is one of the symbols. I'm not saying that there wasn't a literal garden, but I'm quite clear from the way that the Holy Spirit takes it up through the Bible, that Eden is a symbol. He speaks of Satan being there in the garden of Eden. He speaks elsewhere of Eden. What does Eden mean? Eden tells us that God's delight can only rest in certain things. His delight is, as it were, bounded. And his delight is to do with the tree of life at the heart and a river that waters everything. It's fourfold. It's absolutely universal. It goes to the four corners of the earth, almost. they will never be able to find out where this river went. We've understood that the flood has changed the face of the of the east and therefore we don't know quite where uh, two of the rivers go. Great suggestions made. Calvin thought it was the Ganges, one of them, and others have thought it was other great rivers. But one thing we do know is, symbolically, it speaks of a mighty river of life that's going out and giving life and fertility to the whole earth. And where does it come? It comes from this garden And it comes at the heart of it from the tree. The tree is on either side of the river. Now, the tree speaks of the character and type of life. The river, always in scripture, speaks of, shall we put it this way, service, ministry. It is something that's life-giving. Tree is a type, it's a character. God says, have this type of life, have this character, and then we can get on with the job. This ministry that can flow out. You will note, of course, that uh, that you've got these, these same things at the end of the Bible. Instead of Adam, a fallen creation, you've got a city. And from within the city there flows out a river that waters the whole earth. And on either side of the banks of the river there's the tree of life bearing its fruit. Now what does that all mean? It means, first of all, God's delight is in her. That is, the city is God's delight. It is there that God can be pleased. It is there that God can be satisfied, and nowhere else. God's satisfaction is there. Why is it there? Because there's a certain character there. And because of a certain character, there's a certain ministry. Everything is exactly as God would have it, you see, at the end. You've got a, a, a ministry that's flowing out to the ends of the earth because God has got a certain kind of man in the glory with himself. God has got the vessel, and there is God filling the vessel possessing the vessel, expressing himself through the vessel and so in the end we have this wonderful threefold symbol, the city, the river, the tree the river. At the beginning we have the garden, the tree the river. At the beginning it's man's probation at the end it's the securing of God's will. God has got it in the end. Here you've got only the Um, man on probation the thing is set before man look here, I'm going to put it now in absolutely child, treat you all like a lot of children it's as if, going right down to kindergarten, it's as if God said now look here Adam here's a garden see it it's got clearly defined boundaries Adam I'm going to call this garden my delight there's nothing else that can really satisfy me I can say it is good I can stand back and say I see it all, it's good, it's good but to be delighted, to be satisfied to rest Adam, it's this garden and in the midst of the garden, Adam, there's a tree and Adam, this tree stands for a certain kind of man a man that lives in me, and I live in him that's the kind of man he is centered in me and dependent on me for everything fallen from me, He's, he's chosen that life and because of that Adam, I can use him to bring life to the ends of the earth well, that's simply In the simplest way possible I can explain something of Adam's probation. Man was made for service in that sense and the willer stands for that ministry and service. Life-giving, life-creating service. But it all comes and stems from the kind of man that God wants. If he's the kind of man that the tree of life depicts then the river flows out. You notice, of course, how beautifully it's put in verse 8, it, uh, verse 9, it says clearly, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in verse 10, and a river went out of Eden to water the garden from thence it was parted and became four heads, or four rivers. And then it tells you about the four rivers and where they flowed to. That's on. That the whole of this little portion is taken up with this garden of Eden, and do you know another interesting thing: that it is only in these verses, from verse um, eight to verse seventeen, that the garden of Eden is mentioned. It is only mentioned once more in Genesis three. It's very interesting. Now, the garden of Eden is mentioned three times there, and the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is mentioned only here in this chapter, in these few few verses. All to do with Adam's probation everything to do with Adam's probation here. You see, may I just say one more thing about the delight of God? You and I have been made for God. The enemy's deceiving work is all the time to tell us that if we send her everything in God and if we give ourselves Holy for God's possession, we shall be miserable people. That the way of delight lies in self-fulfillment. Whatever that means, whether it be in another person or whether it be in ourselves. That's the way God, that the enemy always speaks to us. And of course it's just the same battle all over again. It's only the same old battle. The tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Come, says the enemy, you fool. Do you think that, that the way of your delight lies along that line? Do you think, you poor creature, that God can satisfy you? You've got a body. You've got a soul. You can only be satisfied by earthly things, by natural things. Do you honestly think that, that God can satisfy you? Do you think that you can be delighted by God? Oh, no. God may need you uh, for his delight, but you won't find delight by uh, going out to him. So the enemy goes on, and so we all still fall uh, to the enemy's tactics. They haven't changed over the years. He comes along the same ground of self-conscious life. He just makes us feel. He he rouses our self-consciousness, our self-centeredness, our, we like to call it independence, our self-dependence, you see. And he gets us along that line. He says, you'll be all right. <laughs> it's all very well to believe this in doctrine's good. You know. It's good in the head. It's good, nice, clean stuff to believe. But of course it doesn't work out in in our experience. We live in an awful world and, and you were made like this, you see. But the enemy breathes in lies <coughs> a lot. And the thing that we never, 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 never believe <coughs> is the simple fact that we were created and constituted for God. And that whilst these other things can satisfy us for a moment, they cannot satisfy us. They cannot. And that's the line along which we have to move and prove it. Sometimes the Lord allows us to go a long way along that line in order just to prove it, that we just become miserable, sour, empty people. We can't understand it. We've got what we wanted. We've satiated ourselves along the lines that we feel. And we're still not delighted, people. We haven't got it see what I mean? No, the way of delight lies along the line of God's delight. Let me put it another way. The way of satisfaction lies along the way of God's satisfaction. Let me put it in another way. The way of rest lies along the way of God's rest. You all never know anything of the garden, and of what a garden in God's Word speaks of, peace, delight, order, joy, fruitfulness of sign, so unless you come to this place. God had delight. When you come within the boundaries of this city, you're in the place of God's delight. And <coughs> in the end, oh in the end, believe me, you'll know what it is to be delighted. Mm. Absolutely delighted. And everything else will fall into its right perspective and place. But you see, the probation goes on. Probation goes on. Even now, we find ourselves in the way of this probation. Well, I must, I must go on. You noted about the river of life, and do you note, three, you note three things which often used to bewilder me. You see here three things mentioned, and we often think, now, why, why are these three things mentioned? Gold, delium, and the onyx stone. Well, what are these doing in this uh, chapter, uh, this second chapter of Jesus? Why does the Holy Spirit underline this? That the river compasses a land where there's wonderful gold found, uh, delium, and the onyx stone. Well, this again, I told you, is in a certain way figurative. It speaks of certain things. And God says, My life, has certain conditions, and the conditions of his life are found within these three things. Gold, delium, and dionic stone. The first gold, well, you know gold. Gold is all the way through the world. It's found everywhere through the world. What does gold speak of? It speaks of many things, but what can can we cover everything by saying that gold is? Gold speaks of the divine nature. The divine nature. And God has said, this life is inseparably bound up with my nature. This life I cannot commit to anything but my nature. If you choose to have another kind of nature, my life can't come. My life won't come. Death comes along that line. You see, if we sow after the flesh, we shall have the flesh, we we corruption. If we sow after the the spirit, we shall... Of the spirit, we black like a lobster. My nature, uh, I I can commit myself to my nature, the divine nature. We are partakers of the divine nature. So you see, this kind of man here. Um, first of all, the first thing, the first condition that God says is, he must have the divine nature. Given the divine nature, I can give him everything. The second thing you'll notice is delium. Uh, what is delium? Well, <clears throat> you'll find it only mentioned one other place in scripture, Numbers 11 and verse 7. Someone would like to read that, Numbers 11 and verse 7. Obviously that's raised over this thing that we call delium. Oh, people, of rabbis have written books on it and... Uh, uh, the early fathers argued about it and the reformers questioned it and everyone um, had uh, a go, as it were, about this question of delium. What is delium? <coughs> Someone said the rabbis say it's a pearl. It's a little pearl down the Red Sea. And many other rabbis say, oh no, it's not. It's a kind of um, herb. Uh, from which we get, like myrrh, from from which we get a kind of incense. And so will be But the scripture, I think, itself tells us what uh, delium is meant to represent. It is meant to represent heavenless asteroids, whatever else Mm. we don't know about delium. It's like manna, and it speaks of being sustained from heaven. Now, whether that's so, of delium or not, whether that's what it was meant to, I believe that's what its meaning is. It is absolutely true about this kind of life we're talking, the life of God. It can only be sustained from heaven. You see, that just shows the kind of life it is. It's a heavenly life, and therefore it has to have a heavenly sustenance. Its growth, its development, its reproduction, its increase, is all along the line of heavenly sustenance. You go out and feed yourself upon sensual things and earthly things, and you can't possibly know an increase of spiritual life. Spiritual life needs heavenly sustenance. It needs heavenly food. And you see, really, what um, the Lord was teaching Adam in his probation with Adam, the whole point about this tree of life and this river of life is simply this. First of all, you've got to have a certain kind of nature. Otherwise, there can be no life. You can't have my life. You can't become the, the vessel for my life unless you've got a certain kind of nature, my nature. And secondly, that nature has got to be sustained from heaven. Its development, its growth, its increase is all, as it were, dependent on me. God gave manna. What did manna speak of? Well, there was nothing natural about manna. It was a heaven-given provision, and it was a miraculous provision. You think of the whole host that were fed by manna in the wilderness for something like forty years. Then you realise what a remarkable thing the manna was. Do you see? God was was providing. Now this kind of life, uh, the provision for it, is heavenly. That means, you see, a walk with the Lord, doesn't it? And then the other thing you notice about this uh, life is the onyx stone. Now we need to turn to two passages of the Word get an understanding of the onyx stone. 1st Exodus, chapter 28, 28, 9 to 12. If someone could read that, please. Pat, could you read it? Okay. And then could you turn over to Deuteronomy, keeping your uh, finger in that reference, turn over to Deuteronomy 33. You notice that it says The fourth were a beryl, an onyx, and a jasper. Well, now, the onyx stone in the breastplate of the high priest had upon it the name engraved Asher. It was the tribe of Asher. It was the stone of the tribe of Asher. Now, if we look up Deuteronomy 33, if someone could read from verse 24 to 25, the onyx stone speak of. These are the mention... It is mentioned here... What does the onyx stone speak of? It speaks of <coughs> dependence on and in God. Do you know where the onyx stone was on the high priest? It was on either shoulder, cross here. And it was on his heart. And it spoke of a position A position in Christ (coughs) before God (coughs) which was absolutely dependent upon God's grace. How come you are born on the shoulders of Christ? And how come you are in the heart of Christ but by the grace of God? You are dependent. If you were to take another position, the Lord help you. If you were to start say, I got there, I got there myself. I did this, I did that, I did the other. And now I'm a child of God. Where would you be? You can only come and you can only say, God took hold of me. God opened my eyes. God brought me to his Son. And now I'm, as it were, born in upon his shoulders and upon his heart into the very presence of God. What, therefore, does the onyx stone speak of in relationship to the life of God? Well, it speaks of three very wonderful things. It speaks, first of all, of a position, which we have mentioned. Secondly, it speaks of an authority. It was like the signet ring, the engraving on a signet. Speaks of authority. You know when we speak of the Lord Jesus said to us, prayer in the name of Jesus, what was he saying? He was simply saying, I'm giving you an authority. But can we just use that authority for anything? Can I get on my knees tonight and say, Lord, I want a world's voice. Uh, please provide it by tomorrow morning. Uh, I ask for it in the name of the Lord Jesus, just like that, and expect to get it. No, my authority is dependent upon, upon the Lord, isn't it? This life of God is absolutely dependent on God. The position Our position in Christ is dependent on him. Our authority is dependent on him. And a very wonderful thing that you get in this little few verses in Deuteronomy is this, that our security or strength is dependent upon God. As thy days are, so shall thy strength be, or thy rest or thy security. And you know, it speaks here of his foot being dipped in oil and his shoes being iron and brass. Isn't that wonderful? His foot being dipped in oil. Now, what does that speak about? What does oil speak about in the Word of God? It speaks of the Holy Spirit. And it says, you see, the whole of this man's livelihood, his pilgrimage, his service, he's got to walk, that was a course everything to do with his feet is dependent upon the Holy Spirit who will shoe him or sh- um, uh, What should we say? Shed him or shot him? Um, in shoes of iron and shoes of brass. And as long as he lives, God will be his security. Well, that's a very wonderful thing. If that's what the Onyx Stone stands for, well, you know, put it in very simple words. It means this. God said, This life is, first of all, dependent on a certain kind of nature in you. Secondly, it is dependent on on a heavenly substance being sustained by myself. And thirdly, its whole security and precision is dependent on me. As long as your days are, so shall your security be. In other words, if you've got that kind of nature, the divine nature, by birth, by spiritual birth, and if you are being sustained, that that, oh, that new creation in you is being sustained against every antagonistic force in this universe, by heavenly sustenance, God says, I'll undertake to keep you from the beginning to the end. I'll, as it were, see that your, your shoes are the right kind of shoes. They won't wear out. I'll see to that. And as long as you live, I'll be your rest and your security. Now, you see, that's all dependent on the kind of life. That's why some of us live such restless, insecure, weak lives. Because, you see, we've not got the life. We're, We're depending on another kind of nature. And God says, that brings death. I can't touch that. I can't sustain that. I can't give you food day by day to keep that alive. I've got to just allow that to die. But given this kind of nature and this kind of life, I'll sustain it from heaven. And not only will I sustain it, I'll undertake to be its security. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. can't get beyond that. The first and the last the Lord comprehends the whole of our existence. This kind of man. Oh, sometimes we wonder, why did Adam fail? If that was all the meaning, and I'm sure that Adam had a certain understanding of it, I don't believe that God just said, look here, you mustn't do that and left it like that. I believe that God explained something to him. That gold and that delium and and that onyx was explained. It's there in symbolic form, but it was explained to him Oh, Adam, God was saying, Adam, you take this way. You take this kind of life. You have this kind of nature, and I'll undertake to keep you. You you don't have to be frightened about Satan. I'll sustain you, and I'll be your security. But no, Adam went the other way. Still, that's another story. Um, I think uh, at any rate, there, there's enough there Um, a man on probation. Now I'm only going to say a few more words and then I we must all rest Um, but I just want to speak about the last few uh, verses of this second chapter of Genesis not a lot I'm going to say because I've got a feeling that some of you will probably when we have a question evening ask questions about it and we'll answer them then but um, the thing I do want to just point out here is Uh, what I call man and his destiny. We've had man as created, we've had man on probation. Now the last part of this chapter speaks of man and his destiny. From verse 18 to verse 25. You remember what I touched upon last week? I think I said something like this. Is it not feasible to believe that the creation of man was, in God's thought, to be the beginning of a far, far, far greater thing than a natural creation. It was to be the beginning of a spiritual creation, of which the natural was only the forerunning probation. According to that principle in 1 Corinthians 15:45 to 47, where the Lord just says, the, the, um, "How be it that which is natural is first, then that which is spiritual? First the earthly, then uh, the heavenly." You see, and I believe that was something in God's mind from the beginning that the natural was going to be, but a school. What was this garden? I believe it was going to be a school. Uh, uh, a school in a natural creation and really the whole thought of God was I'm not going to end here I'm not going to end with an Eden I'm going to end end with a city coming down from heaven I'm going to end with an Eden coming out from the earth I'm going to end with a city coming down from heaven Now some people think, oh no 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 no. that's all the result of the form. that new Jerusalem that bride of the Lamb that's all, the wife of the lamb, that's all, that's all the result of the fall. Oh no, I'm not so sure it was the result of the fall. Thank God it's come, even if there has come a fall, by the cross and by the Lord Jesus. Uh, it's, we've got it back, we're in it. But the wonder to me is that it may well have been God's original thought that this Eden was but, as it were, the uh, the school for a far more wonderful thing, a heavenly, thing, a spiritual creation, which was going to come out of man's perfect obedience in the garden. It was going to be his probation, he was going to get through, and then he was going to go on. The whole point was this, had man got a resurrection body then? I don't know, I mean, that's, I'm just asking you to think about it. Was God's thought a resurrection body? Well, there again, we've got to uh, go to the scripture and you'll have to look that up and follow that too. Was God's thought that man here should, without possibly even such a thing as we know as death, there should come at a certain point in Adam's history as he went on with the Lord a wonderful change. Just like some of us will know if the Lord come before we die, in the twinkling of, the, of an eye, and this old body suddenly become a new body, a resurrection body. But was that going to happen in the garden anyway, without him being laid to rest in the earth? If Adam had gone on with the Lord and had had obeyed and had come to the point where God said, well, now we've got through this stage of things, we've got through this class in the school, now you're going on into a new class and Adam's body would have changed and couldn't bring an eye and it would have moved on and been released from that sphere into another sphere. I don't know. I leave it for you to think about. I say it's speculation. We have to be careful of that. But there's one thing I am sure about, and that was this. the Garden of Eden was but a forerunning uh, natural probation. To something far, far more wonderful. Far more wonderful. I believe that the God was going to bring the Lord Jesus into that garden, uh, even without the fall. But uh, his thought was the wife prepared for the son of God. That would have all come even without what we know as before, and the whole history in between. I've said something, of course, about the delight of God and the delight of man and I'm going to leave that, but except to say that this whole question of marriage is summed up just in those few words, the delight of God and the delight of man. Meeting, actually meeting, being fused in such a way as that each is dependent on the other.